Well, happy Lord's Day to you. It's, uh, I would say it's good to see you, but I can't see any of you. Uh, I can imagine you all sitting here. I know where you sit. I know where the families have their assigned yet not assigned seats. And I really look forward to the day when we're back in here and I can see you back in these seats. Won't that be a glorious time? Uh, But I'm glad either way to at least be able to connect this way, to be able to open God's Word with you in some form or fashion, and to see what it is that God would have for us today. Uh, Just happy to do it, uh, though I long for normalcy, just like I'm sure you do also. We we trust God through these days, don't we? And, And for all of our days, we should have our supreme trust in Him. Well, before we pray, I want you to stand up. So if you're in your living room or your, or your basement or your bedroom or wherever you may be, stand up because you have a tendency, being at home, to just sink into something soft. Uh, now look where you were just sitting, look back. Is that a really soft place that causes you just to like sink in? Did you have a blanket on? Uh, were you kicking your feet up? All of those things work against getting the most out of this message today, all right? So I want you to just keep looking around your room there and look for something that can make your life a little more uncomfortable. Uh, Find something that maybe could resemble a wooden pew and sit on that. Uh, That's why some churches have wooden pews, by the way, is to make sure you don't, uh, you know, snooze and that you keep paying attention. Uh, Do you have your notes? I sent you some notes. If not, do you have a piece of paper? Do you have something to write with? Do you have something to write on? Why don't you go ahead and check out all that stuff and see if you can put yourself in a situation where you can be a little bit like uh, maybe a student or something here where uh, you're really going to be focused. Do you have to go to the bathroom? Now would be a good time for that. you know, not in the middle of the message, but at the beginning, or wait till it's over. That would be good too. But whatever you need to do to try to get yourself focused to where you can uh, maybe take yourself out of a typical living room experience, now is the time to do all of that. Because we're going to be going through another three chapters of Deuteronomy today. We're going to be covering chapters 17, 18, and 19 of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 19. Wow. Uh, wow, wow, wow. There is a lot to see in there, and we'll be doing a little bit of jumping around. We're going to not just cover 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, all the way through 19, but we're going to jump here and there within those chapters, and so uh, be ready for that. We're not going to go just verse by verse in order. We're going to uh, cover it in a different order. And all of this is going to be related to the title of today's message, which is Administration of Justice. Uh, this is about God's justice and about how He administers justice on the earth. And it's very important that as we approach the topic of justice or approach the topic of righteousness, that we start with, as a foundation, the law of God. This is absolutely foundational to understanding righteousness, is understanding the law of God. If you do not understand the law, you're going to have a hard time grasping a a full comprehension of the book of Romans, for instance. We see in the New Testament an assumption of God's righteousness, and God's righteousness is most clearly defined in the law. So we have to get this as a foundation as Christians. And I would love to have a fuller conversation on this. I've talked to a couple of you this week, and I've said how 
I just really enjoyed going through the law, and I would love to do a, a long Bible study on the law, though I'm afraid I would have no students for that class. Uh, but I would love to just go slowly and look at all these individual commands of God and explain the principles and discover with you how that applies to us today because it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating, uh, at least to me. This is something that's really fired me up. And I don't foresee myself doing that in the near future, so I want to recommend a reference to you, something that's more like that, and that's a lecture series by James White called The Holiness Code. You can write that down, The Holiness Code, and you can find that on Sermon Audio. .net, I believe. But if you just Google search James White Holiness Code, uh, you can find the, that, uh, that series, and that would be beneficial for you to go through, all right? Uh, so consider doing that to understand more about the law that God has given us as a foundation to understanding His righteousness. And when we understand God's justice and righteousness in the law, the New Testament is just going to be like uh, growing all kinds of beautiful flowers that you never saw before. It's going to be much more colorful, much more fragrant because you understand the weightiness, you understand the, the depth, you understand the, the breadth and the width of God's righteousness, all right? It's important that we, that we have that mindset. Let's go ahead and pray, and we're going to actually begin in Psalm 99. So keep your finger in Deuteronomy if you've already turned there, but go to Psalm 99. That's where we'll start after I uh, say a word of prayer before we get started here this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, your kindness toward us, how you've been so gentle and patient with us. Uh, you've shown us grace and mercy, and we did not deserve any of it. And so, Lord, we ask that uh, we would see these things more richly today, that we would uh, have these things, uh, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, right alongside us as we study Scripture, uh, that your Spirit would be doing a marvelous work in our hearts and in our minds to cause us to see and hear and to follow Jesus. Uh, God, give us a greater vision of your Lordship a deeper understanding of who you are and who we are, that salvation would be more wonderful to us today as we understand more from your Word. Give us uh, just a great time of study as we are in different locations, uh, hearing this and examining this together. We ask for uh, your blessing on me as I teach and preach, that it wouldn't be flawed, but you would use me, uh, that it wouldn't be erroneous, but instead that it would be in line with your word, that uh, though I'm a sinner, both by nature and by choice, that uh, I would be used by you to proclaim your excellencies in a way that is honoring to you. God, we ask uh, for your blessing on this day, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 99 is where we're going to begin, and what we're going to do as we open up this uh, this idea of God's justice and God's righteousness is we're going to just look at several passages together before we go back to Deuteronomy. Psalm 99 is the only one that you need to turn to. The rest will be on the screen uh, for you, though Psalm 99 will be on the screen too. Uh, but they'll all be on the screen, and I just want you to start to wrap your mind around the justice of God, the righteousness of God. 
This is one of His communicable attributes. There are certain attributes that God has, like how He's infinite and how He's eternal, how He exists outside of time and space. Those are called incommunicable attributes because we cannot, uh, we cannot uh, reflect that. We are absolutely limited. We will never be infinite beings. We are finite beings. We do not exist outside of time and space. We never will exist outside of time and space. And we're just limited as beings that way, and God doesn't uh, cause us to have those qualities because then we would all be gods. But we are creatures, and He's the Creator. So certain attributes that God has do not communicate to us. They're incommunicable. Yet His justice, His righteousness, is a communicable attribute, like His love and His mercy and His kindness and patience. Those are things that we can reflect and implement in our lives, so we can also reflect God's justice. And as we examine God's justice, we see that God is perfectly fair in all that He does. He is perfectly right in all that He does. God's God's righteousness is the standard. His justice is the standard. How do we define what is just, what is right, what is wrong? It's by God alone. He is the authority over our definition of righteousness and justice. God's justice is comprehensive. It covers all areas of life. God is concerned with all areas of His creation, and He is going to prove His righteousness in every area. And His justice is inescapable, meaning that there is no, no one made in the image of God who is going to escape His justice. And for those of us who know that we are sinners, that can be a frightening thought. But for those of us who understand that His righteousness was given to us in Jesus, it's a beautiful thought. Because we can stand before God boldly with confidence, knowing that our righteousness comes from Him. He gives us His righteousness. Yet for those who do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have not submitted to the one true God who has revealed Himself in the Holy Bible, for those who reject that, the fact that God's justice is inescapable should be absolutely terrifying because they will be judged, and they, when all their works are exposed, they will be condemned. In fact, Jesus said those who haven't believed in Him are condemned already. Condemnation already exists upon them, because God is just, and He views everyone through the lens of perfect justice and perfect righteousness. Well, let's start in Psalm 99, shall we? We have a lot of ground to cover, and I feel like I've already used up a bunch of time. Let's look at Psalm 99, verses 1 through 5. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Do you see in those verses, in this song, do you see God's justice and righteousness? It's right there. God is great and awesome and holy 
And God establishes equity and executes justice and executes righteousness. Let me read to you several more passages. Isaiah 9, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. This is a Christmas verse, you might think. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Messiah who was to come, the Lord who was to come, a child to be born to us, what is the end of, of all of this, what the the one who is going to be incarnated and walk among us, what's His end? To establish justice and righteousness for the government to be on His shoulders. Isaiah 16, verse 5, it says, A throne will, be, uh, or a throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. This is that coming Messiah, the Lord, the zeal of the Lord incarnate. He is going to sit on a throne and He's going to judge. This is Jesus, the one who has come and is coming again. And when He comes again, He is sitting on a throne to be prompt in righteousness. Wow. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, it says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for His law. That's what Jesus is going to be doing. He is going to be ruling from a throne, establishing justice among the nations. And we saw Jesus' attitude toward justice and righteousness in His first coming. There will be uh, you know, a greater fulfillment of this, a greater demonstration of this in His second coming. But in His first coming, we saw this too. In Matthew 23, uh, we see this. We looked at this verse uh, Thursday night before last. We looked at this verse where He rebukes the scribes and Pharisees saying, Hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. He was already demonstrating his passion for righteousness in his first coming, rebuking the Pharisees, rebuking the scribes, because they were not reflecting the justice of God as they can do and should have been doing. He was rebuking them for not upholding righteousness and being passionate about righteousness. And this was something that happened in Israel's history continually leading up to the time of Christ. Amos chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, the Lord says to Israel, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. 
And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The call upon Israel was to be a righteous nation and to uphold righteousness. Micah 6.8, a verse that many of you know. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. First thing listed in what the Lord requires of man, do justice, to do justice. And Israel failed over and over again at a leadership level and at a layperson level. They continually failed. They were an apostate nation when Jesus came. They all had forsaken justice instead of doing justice. And you think of the church today and our call now that Jesus has come and established His church, the church that He's continually building, how are we supposed to act? Romans 12, 9-17, it says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Respect what is right. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. We have to have an understanding of justice and righteousness in order to do this. As a foundation... For Christian living, we must understand the righteousness of God. Look in Deuteronomy with me at the end of chapter 16. It says in Deuteronomy 16, starting at verse 18, Moses commanded the people, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice, it says. Verse 19, you shall not be partial, you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Verse 20, justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. What was the command for Israel? Justice and only justice you shall pursue. Israel's well-being in the land, Israel's existence in the land, depended on their commitment to upholding God's justice, to upholding God's righteous standard. Thus, there is no better place to get a foundation for God's justice than in the law, because he's explaining to them what that looks like. What does it mean to pursue justice, to uphold God's righteousness? Well, we're going to see it 
in chapters 17 through 19 today. And let's start in 17 verse 1. We're going to look at the first seven chapters of Deuteronomy, or first seven verses of Deuteronomy 17, and see uh, some laws explained. We're going to see some transgressions listed, and then we're also going to see the penalties for those transgressions. So if you have your notes, there's a little table on there where you can write the transgressions and the penalties. We're going to see the first five of those here in pretty short order. Let's look at verses 1 through 7 of Deuteronomy 17. It says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. If there is found in your midst, in any of your towns which the Lord your God has given, giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing His covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly hosts which I have not commanded. And if it is told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is false worship. This is the transgression of false worship. And the penalty was death, capital punishment, the death penalty. And we see here in this text the, uh, the first time, and we're going to see it again today, but the first time today, the two or three witnesses principle down there in uh, verse 6. Two or three witnesses was the standard. There should not be one witness who can go up to somebody or go up to the leaders rather and say, this person over there... Uh, was worshiping wrongly, so let's kill him. That wasn't allowed in Israel. There had to be two or three witnesses in order to corroborate a story. And it's interesting that we saw at the end of that passage, the witness is the first one to strike the person. When two or three witnesses come and say, this is what that person has done, they are the first ones to start to put that person to death. And then the representatives of all of Israel were to come and finish the job. This is an interesting uh, practice because if those witnesses were lying, then what they've done is put someone to death wrongly, and that's called murder. And the penalty for murder is, of course, death. And so those people had to, had to be the ones to put a person to death with their own hands. It was a very weighty thing. And this is a good law. Some people today, I'm sure the majority of secular people today would look at this and say, how wicked that there would be a death penalty for practicing a a religion outside of the Israelite Hebrew tradition. Well, um, this is something you just have to embrace if you are going to embrace the Bible. You have to embrace that God is... You have to embrace that God has all authority, and you have to embrace that every command of God is good. 
We are not, as, as fallen creatures, we are not to take our own standards and apply them to the text and say, I wouldn't do that, therefore God is wrong. You've got to get outside of that thinking because what you've just done is made yourself God. You've made yourself the authority. But instead, we appeal to God's Word and we see the authority speaking to us and we uphold this Word as authoritative. And we believe what it says, we trust what it says, and we understand that what it says is good in all areas of life. And this is good that false worship would be immediately extinguished from Israel because false worship is evil, isn't it? And false worship ruins lives, doesn't it? False worship leads people to death. Therefore, to control the spread of evil, to control the spread of what is false in that nation state within Israel, they were to remove that person by stoning that person. Serious, serious offense that the Israelites were to take uh, with just great concern. Now, in the New Testament, of course, the church doesn't exist as a nation state like Israel. The church doesn't have civil laws that we would take over uh, masses of land and then institute our laws as the law of the land. That's not the mission of the church. However, we do see principles like this in the New Testament, and perhaps most clearly we see it in church discipline. Church discipline doesn't end in stoning somebody, okay? So don't hear me saying that. We don't put someone to death in the process of church discipline. But what, what do we see happening in church discipline as Jesus taught us, Matthew 18 and, and other places? Well, the person who refuses to repent of sin eventually gets removed from the fellowship of the church. That person is then treated as an outsider. That evil has to be purged to some degree. So that principle we see continued through the church that we cannot let that which is wicked False worship spread. We cannot let it spread, but it must be purged. That root has to be pulled out of the ground. Let's go to Deuteronomy 19 to look at related laws to this very concept. Deuteronomy 19. The first 10 verses of Deuteronomy 19 we won't read together, but it has to do with an accidental killing. And the example that's used in that passage is you're out chopping wood and your axe head flies off and it kills a guy. What happens now? Because you didn't mean to do that, but you just killed a guy. So what's the next step? Uh, And you had to imagine that this was a relevant uh, scenario, that there were all kinds of things that happened in Israel where people would be killed accidentally. They didn't have a lot of our modern security tools that we have today. Uh, They didn't have many of the safety features that we find on the job today. Uh, but even today, accidents happen. I, something kind of similar to this, when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old, my dad uh, went on a, uh, a golf tournament thing with his work, and he was at the driving range before the uh, tournament started, before his team was to go and, and tee off. And he was at the driving range, and he was using his driver, his, his uh, biggest club. And as he was driving the ball... Uh, the head of the club flew off and went down into the driving range. Who knows how far? Probably not as far as the ball, but there it went, flying. 
Uh, later on, because someone went back to their house to go get him a driver, he was pretty far away from home, so one of his co-workers went to go get him another driver, so he was using his three-wood, and there he was teeing off, Whoo! same thing happened to the three-wood. The head of the club went flying off right down there into the middle of the, of the driving range, as if the first time wasn't embarrassing enough, it happened to him twice. Uh, so what do we learn from that? Well, one, you shouldn't buy golf clubs from Kmart, which is where he bought them. Uh, the second thing that we can learn from that, though, is accidents happen. If someone was standing down there in that driving range, which would have been an awful idea, but if someone would have been there and got struck by the end of that club, it's feasible that that person would suffer lethal injury. And what is to happen then in an accidental situation? Well, in Israel, we find through the law that they were to establish cities of refuge where the manslayer, the one who accidentally killed someone, could go for safety. And we covered this back in Deuteronomy 4. The end of Deuteronomy 4, we talked through this. Uh, Each family in Israel was to be protective of their own family. So there was a blood avenger within each family so that if a person was killed, the blood avenger would be the one who was responsible to uphold justice and to make sure the murderer was put to death. Well, in an accidental killing, you needed a city of refuge to escape from that blood avenger. Someone in that person's family was going to come after you and shed your blood because you shed his family member's blood. So that person was to go to the city of refuge and to stay there until the high priest died. So we could say that the transgression here was the accidental killing, and the penalty was to go stay in the city of refuge. That person had to stay in that city for a certain time. That person could not leave. In fact, the law said if that person leaves the city of refuge, then that person is open to being uh, killed by the blood avenger, and that's the way it should go. That person needs to stay in that city of refuge as um, a penalty of sorts. A penalty of sorts was to stay there. And we see in this God's beautiful provision for something that's even accidental. The third law that we see here right off the bat is the law of uh, against murder. Look at verse 11 with me of Deuteronomy 19. It says, But if there is a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies and flees to one of these cities... Then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and deliver him to the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. You shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel, that it may go well with you. So this is a case where a person uh, perhaps tries to play off a murder as an accidental killing. It says in verse 11, the man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and strikes him so that he dies. But then he goes to a city of refuge saying, well, I didn't mean to do that. Let me go to the city of refuge. That city of refuge will protect me. God's law says, no, that person who was proven to have murdered somebody should be taken out of that city of refuge and put to death. So murder is the transgression and the penalty is death. And there's a reminder here in verse 13, don't pity him. It's always tempting to want to pity someone, even someone you know is guilty. But when carrying out God's perfect righteousness, you are to have allegiance to God's justice in that matter, not your feelings for that person or any kind of emotional plea that that person could make. A fourth 
transgression that we see here is in verse 14. It kind of seems like an out-of-place verse, but it says, "'You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set, in your inheritance which you will inherit the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess.'" says, don't move property lines, basically, is what that's talking about. But respect your neighbor's property. This is a, an often repeated command in the Old Testament. Uh, apparently, it was a big issue in Israel. You had all these boundaries within the land, and it's tempting to you know, move the goalposts a little bit, to start moving a stone a little bit here, a little bit there, to expand your own territory. Well, this is theft. It's a theft issue. Taking someone's property is called stealing. That person is a thief, and it's still an issue today. We don't see in this verse a penalty, but we'll see later on in Deuteronomy 27 that the ultimate penalty for this is cursing from God. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down. The penalty here is stealing your neighbor's property, or the, uh, the transgression is stealing your neighbor's property. And the penalty ultimately is getting cursed by God. It also says in other places in Scripture that for the one who moves his neighbor's boundary, the wrath of God is on that person. What greater penalty could there be than being directly cursed by God? A fifth uh, thing, a uh, fifth law, I shouldn't say thing, a fifth law we'll see here in just a moment. But before we get there, look at verse 15 with me. Deuteronomy 19, 15, it says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of an iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now, this is the same thing that we saw in Deuteronomy 17 just a few moments ago, uh, that there has to be two or three witnesses for someone to be convicted of any transgression. You can see the reasonableness behind this, can't you? Uh, we can't just walk around and say, oh, that person did this or that person did that, so go ahead, kill them. Go ahead, uh, you know, uh, withhold benefits from that person as a penalty because that person didn't do something that he was supposed to do or that person committed a sin. There would be so much abuse of this uh, within Israel, and it's absolutely crazy to penalize somebody on the basis of only one witness. And this is a problem in America today, isn't it? We're seeing really high-profile cases where there is only one witness. No one is corroborating the story, but we are just to believe whatever someone says. And you are shamed. You are put down by the culture if you don't believe that person. If you say, well, I'd like to hear another side of the story, well, then you're just being a bigot because you are supposed to just bow the knee and believe whatever anybody says. Well, that's not the way God has created you to live. God gave you a brain. You are to be discerning. You are to judge. You are to uphold righteousness. And that means recognizing some people lie. Some people kind of twist the truth a little bit in order to benefit themselves. You have to take all of that into consideration in this life as we discern what is good and what is evil. I find really interesting that this uh, command to have two or three witnesses, we see it three times in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we see it five times. The command to have two or three witnesses is a New Testament 
a principle for believers and how we are to live. In Matthew 18, that passage I cited earlier about church discipline, remember it says, you are to go to the person who has offended you first, one-on-one, and have a conversation. But what's the second thing? Take two or three with you. So that way, if the person doesn't repent, now you have two or three witnesses, and you're able to have a case for your church leadership to hear and to discern. Two or three witnesses in church discipline. We also see it in 2 Corinthians 13. That's the matter of, of church discipline also. And in 1 Timothy 5, it says, do not accept uh, an accusation against an elder in a local church except on the basis of two or three witnesses. It's very, very good that we have this principle. We see it five times total in the New Testament. You, could, you can do a simple search online, two or three witnesses in the Bible, and you can see all those verses. Uh, it's just an important thing for us to recognize that a single person should never have the authority to condemn someone else um, or to uh, subjugate someone, subject someone to penalization. It has to be two or three witnesses. Uh, remember that in the way that you live your life, and remember that in the church, that we need to have multiple witnesses. Now, going back to Deuteronomy 19, uh, look at verse 16 with me. It talks about the instance of a single malicious witness. It says, if a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have, have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's law number five, the transgression of a false witness, being a false witness. And the penalty there is that whatever that false witness wanted somebody to get, that false witness is going to get for himself. This is called the law of retribution, the law of retribution. Notice that it says uh, multiple things in verse 21, listing off body parts, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. There was actually only one law in the Old Testament that required the mutilation of a body part. There were lots of death penalty laws, but there was only one law that talked about cutting off a hand. Uh, there were no laws that talk about cutting off a foot, cutting off, or uh, pulling out a tooth, or pulling out an eye, or something like that. Uh, those things didn't exist. So what's being expressed here through perhaps some hyperbole as a as a device of expressing the seriousness of this, is that if someone lies to the judges and says, this person did this thing, give that person the death penalty, if it turns out that that person was lying, then that person who desired that other person to be killed, that malicious witness should be killed, should receive the death penalty rightly and justly. Life for life is what's mainly in view here. And the law teaches that the judges within Israel would decide. Now, you, you've heard this verse before, the eye for eye uh, verse, because Jesus quotes this in the, the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't He? 
Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, and I tell you, turn the other cheek. Well, that's absolutely 100% true. Um, The Israelites had taken this verse and said, okay, anybody does something wrong to me, I'm going to go back to that person and give that person uh, retribution immediately. That person, uh, you know, gouges my eye, I'm going to go gouge that person's eye. That is the wrong application of the law. In our personal relationships, we were never to seek vengeance for ourselves. In Romans 12 that I read from earlier, it says, Do not take vengeance for yourself. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. The judges in Israel who were to hear those cases, they were going to apply the law rightly in all, in all of those situations. And so Jesus was rebuking the Jews of His day, saying, You've taken this law and you've applied it the wrong way. You're taking all your own vengeance. But I tell you, turn the other cheek, because even if the judges in our day do not exact righteousness and justice the way that we desire it to be seen, we should know and trust that there is a God in heaven who is the perfect judge, the perfectly righteous judge, and He will exact all the justice. He will bring about uh, all the vengeance because He's the one who can do it rightly, and our trust is in Him. We do not personally seek our own revenge, but we trust ourselves to God and trust ourselves to God for Him to bring it about. All right, so that uh, ends the first part of the sermon. I know that was a whole lot. I hope that the notes are helping and that you can kind of keep up that way because we're trying to cover a lot of ground today. Uh, But now we're going to talk in the second part of the sermon about those who administer God's justice. We've heard what God's justice is, And now we're going to learn more about these judges that were just mentioned at the end of Deuteronomy 19, the priests and judges who will be in office, it says in verse 17. Uh, These judges, uh, as it says in, let's look at that again, verse 17, these judges are representatives of the Lord. It says, "The, the two men who have a dispute shall stand before Elohim, before the Lord, and What does that mean? Well, it says in verse 17, the priests before the priests and judges. So when they would come with their case before the judges in Israel, it was the same as coming before God Himself because God selected these judges and these priests as His representatives on earth. And what I want you to see in the second part of the message today is that God uses stewards to administer justice on the earth. God uses deacons, ministers, to administer justice on the earth. Let's turn back to chapter 17, Deuteronomy 17, and let's look more at this system that God designed for Israel. Deuteronomy 17, starting at verse 8, it says, If any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, and between one kind of assault or another, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. You shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict in the case." 
You shall do according to the terms of the verdict which they declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses, and you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you, according to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, that man shall die. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Then all the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. So the system that's set up here within Israel is that there are local judges in the cities and towns, and then there's like the big guns, the Jerusalem guys, the Levitical priests, and the supreme court within Israel. And what we find here is that when the local judges and leaders couldn't figure out a dispute, they were to go to the place the Lord chooses, which of course ended up being Jerusalem. They were to go there and to bring the case before these godly leaders. They were to go to Jerusalem to hear the instruction of the Lord concerning that specific case. And this is the sixth law in that table that I have on your notes, the sixth one here. We found out in this passage that those who rejected the instructions of the leaders, that's the transgression, ignoring godly leaders, uh, the Levitical priests and the judges in Jerusalem, those who rejected those instructions were to die. They were to be put to death. The penalty for transgressing the command of the Levitical priests and the judges was the death penalty. That's because the Levitical priests, those judges in Israel, they were God's representatives on the earth. What they said was binding. What they said was binding in those situations. And for someone to reject their instruction was to reject the instruction of God. The Levites, the Levitical priests, the judges were there to serve Israel by giving them good and right judgment. Uh, the Levites, we can read about more in chapter 18, or you can just make note of it. We won't read the whole passage. But the Levites, uh, this specific tribe in Israel, remember they were not uh, given any land. They were the one tribe out of the twelve that was not given land in Israel. But instead, they were to serve the Lord and to live off of tithes that the other Israelites would give for them to live off of. We covered this Thursday night uh, a couple weeks ago that um, the Levites were to receive a tithe from all of Israel, the first fruits of the grain and all of that, and, and they were to live on that. But I do want us to see verse 3 of chapter 18. This is kind of interesting. The Levites who were serving Israel as priests and judges... It says, this shall be the priest's due from all the people, from those who offer a sacrifice, either an ox or a sheep, of which they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. I thought that was kind of interesting and perhaps a little bit humorous, that what do the Levites get? They get the shoulder and cheeks and stomach of the sacrifice. So they got to live off of that too. Those people that God appointed in the land, they didn't have land of their own, but instead they served all the people uh, and lived by the tithes of the people, including shoulders, cheeks, and stomachs of uh, some mammals that they were going to sacrifice to the Lord. Um, 
in all of this, as the Israelites were to listen to these ministers of God's justice, the ones who understood the law, and this is an important point, the Levites and the judges were to know the law really well. They were, like to, know, they were to know it front and back, so that way when those cases were presented to them, they could give a right judgment. Notice how God set this up. At a local level, if a dispute is unable to be figured out, where were you to go? You were to go to the people who have committed their lives to studying the law of God to be able to give a right judgment. They didn't go to some secular institution. They didn't ask for some uh, pagan king to come in and say, well, how do you do it over there in your nation? Can you figure this out and tell us what to do? They were to go to the law of God, the very revelation of God. That was going to have all the answers for them, and that was going to solve the problem. What's the answer to their problems? The law of God and the people who understand the law of God. And, and so, as the average Israelite lived his life, he would not only have those godly leaders there to whom he was supposed to listen, but he would also have a bunch of imposters. And that's what chapter 18 goes on to talk about. Deuteronomy 18, really starting at uh, verse 9 and continuing, let's look at verse 9. It says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. The nations that they were going to drive out contained all sorts of false uh, teachers, all sorts of false prophets, all sorts of people who practice things that the Lord considers to be an abomination. All the way down through verse 22, again, we won't read, read this verse for verse, you should read it on your own. But all through this passage, God is commanding the Israelites to discern for themselves and separate evil advisors from godly and righteous advisors, uh, to separate those who are committed to uh, practicing false worship from those who are committed to Yahweh and His law. They were to make that judgment as they lived their lives, because we find out in this passage that there were all sorts of wicked people in the land. We're talking about people who sacrificed their children, baby killers, sacrificed their children to Molech, diviners, witches, people who interpreted omens, sorcerers, spellcasters, mediums, spiritists, and necromancers. Those are kind of the categories we get in this passage that tried to give people advice based on false worship and false gods, false spiritual advice and false leadership that God considers to be an abomination. If I could summarize in perhaps more uh, you know, regular, everyday language who these false advisors were, they were those who would sacrifice to false gods, they would seek to know the mind of false gods, they would try to communicate with the dead. They would try to interpret false revelations that were given by other false teachers. They would seek to do miracles by another power, a power other than God. And they would consult with demons. So there's a whole long uh, list and a, and a really wide spectrum of what false teachers could look like in the land. But let me assure you, one thing that they all had in common is they were all competing to win the influence over people. They were competing with God Himself. 
in their minds, to win the influence that they could lead people astray, to lead people into false ways of thinking, to lead people into engaging with dangerous uh, demonic activity. And is, the Israelites were told to stay away from those types of people, to stay away and to put to death those who do such things. It says um, in verse 13 of chapter 18, "'You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so.'" Uh, Back up in verse 10, "'There shall not be found among you anyone,' and then it goes on to list those who uh, make his son or daughter pass through the fire, uses divination, etc., etc. So we find here another law. I think this is the last one in that little table. The transgression is those um, who are practicing false uh, worship or those who are engaging with the demonic, those who are advising in an ungodly way. The law against that is the death penalty. Those false prophets were to receive the death penalty. Those attempting to manipulate the supernatural for their own benefit, for the sake of personal gain, they were to die. That evil was to be purged among the nation of Israel. Now, of course, like I mentioned, there was probably great difficulty uh, in some cases for the Israelites to determine whether someone was being godly or ungodly. And, and we deal with this today, don't we? We have access to endless teachings online. Just on YouTube, if we were to restrict it just to YouTube, how many different Bible lessons could you pull up this afternoon on YouTube? It's countless, endless. I mean, you can't put a number on it. Are all those teachers the same? Nope. Absolutely not. You'll have perhaps an old Charles Spurgeon sermon that we would heartily agree with and we would say that's an amazing message and and truth was spelled out so accurately. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we'll have some crazy person talking about all sorts of crazy things about, you know, if you hold your Bible this way, you can read Revelation and see some really cool stuff because these words all connect in this certain way, and that means that such and such and so and so is the Antichrist according to, you know, uh, my own interpretation. You got to stay away from that stuff, but it can be really difficult to know whether someone is a true preacher or a false preacher. And so there's some hope that's given to the Israelites that we also can grab onto for ourselves today, starting in verse 15. Look at Deuteronomy 18, 15. It says, "'The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, uh, which he shall speak in my name, I myself 
will require it of him. There was someone coming. This was their hope that Messiah, the prophet, was coming. And they were to keep their eyes fixed on that, the coming of the the capital P, prophet. And so we today as Christians, knowing that this is Jesus, we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we try to to discern a world that is full of all sorts of confusing error, all sorts of truth that's mixed with error. We just look to Jesus and we trust Jesus and we trust what Christ taught us and His apostles who taught us. And we trust the leaders and the influencers that God has put in our lives locally in good churches as they give us counsel. And we rely on the great shepherd, Jesus Himself. And as long as we we keep the gospel central, who Jesus is and what Jesus did on our behalf. As long as we keep that central, we trust that God will not let us go astray. And we're told in this same passage in the following verses that if there comes someone you know, in the society within Israel, if someone comes along and speaks in uh, God's name, about a prophecy. So he's trying to speak authoritatively, and he says, this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen, that we should reject that prophet, that all false prophets should be put to death, and we should not be afraid of those false prophets. That's another thing that in our Christian life we can be tempted to do, is to be scared of all the false teaching that's out there, to be afraid but instead, we look to Jesus and we find our confidence and our trust and, and uh, our rest in Jesus alone as He leads us in discerning right from wrong in this life. Now, in all of this, when we think about the system of priests and the system of judges and prophets, uh, these are all humans. And God uses humans to accomplish His ends in this world. He uses the means of human devotion to accomplish His glory in the end. But we see that as long as humans are involved, there will always be error, won't there? There will always be difficulty. There will always be complexity and confusion merely because humans are involved. And we see that still not just in the system of judges and priests, not just in the area of prophets, but we see it also in the area of kings. And these chapters speak to that. Turn back with me to chapter 17, verses 14 through 17. God speaks of kings and how they can also lead people astray. Deuteronomy 17, starting at verse 14, it says, "'When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. The king that Israel was to receive 
was to meet specific criteria. And there's a warning that God gives that He shouldn't be these certain things, that He has to be a fellow countryman, He shouldn't be interested in His own gain, He shouldn't use the people to profit Himself, He shouldn't multiply wives for Himself, but He should act a certain way. And this is an interesting passage because if you know your Old Testament timeline, you know that the first king in Israel was Saul. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people desired to be like all the nations around them. And God knew that they would respond that way. He knew that they would cry out for an earthly king. That's why He says, uh, you know, the king shall meet all these criteria um, after you say, I will set a king over me like the nations who are around me. He knew that they would desire to be like all the other nations and that would cause great problems for them. So He gives them specific uh, instructions as to what a king should be. And what we see in all of this is that um, it's not a good idea to imitate pagans, is it? It's not a good idea to look around and to be like all the other nations. Because again, if you know your Old Testament history, this just ended really poorly. You had Saul, then you had David, and then you had Solomon. And when you look at the list of things that kings shouldn't do, those three guys pretty much just was hitting that nail on the head, weren't they? Um, these kings were actually, if you go on to read, the kings were supposed to sit down and to write out the law for themselves. Not their scribe, not their, uh, their assistants, but they were to write the law out for themselves and to study and know the law. They were to be righteous. God was going to pick out the king, and that king was to obey God's commands as to what a king should do and be. Well, Israel didn't do that, did they? They imitated the pagans in every way, and God knew that they would do it. God knew that it would happen. He knew that man would fail. He knew that man would not meet his responsibility, even the king. And what this is, what we see in all of this with the judges, with the priests, with the kings, with the prophets, we see that God has designed this to reveal to us Jesus incarnate, the perfect king, the perfect prophet, the perfect judge, the perfect priest. Think of all of the apostasy that happened in Israel's history leading up to the time of Christ. That James White series that I mentioned earlier, The Holiness Code, he goes in uh, in his lesson on Deuteronomy 17, he goes into the Josiah story. King Josiah takes over in Israel, uh, in Judah, after his father. Where was the law? The law that the king was supposed to sit down and write all by himself and to uphold and to cherish. Where was that law when Josiah took over? Do you remember that it was like uh, a house party had just happened in Israel, that false gods were in, all the the construction that had happened that God told them to make was taken down and all the false worship was put up. It was like there was food everywhere and, and streamers all over the place. It was just a mess. And so they go to clean out the, the temple. They go to clean it all and to establish what is right. And they find the law just lying around under a pile of rubble. They find the law. There was great apostasy in Israel. The kings failed over and over again. 
And Jesus came into an apostate Israel. Jesus came to Israel, His own, and His own did not receive Him. The leaders in Israel who were supposed to love the law and be masters of the law, those leaders executed the Lord of the law, didn't they? They put Him to death. Their hearts were so far from God's heart. Their relationship with God was totally cut off because human rulers are never suitable in and of themselves. They need God to lead through them. And the Israelites had long given up on that and sought their own personal sinful desires. Well, we are not in Israel. We don't have priests and judges and kings over us today. Though we do live in a place with lots of government, don't we? We live in a place that has lots of authority. And I want us to finish today in Romans 13, speaking of how we are to understand God's law on these matters today. We live in America where we have a system of checks and balances, three different branches of government. And those branches keep growing, don't they? (laughs) Branches is the right word because it's a living organism that doesn't shrink. It grows until God cuts that tree down. Uh, But it's just growing and growing. We have lots of authority over us. And uh, we see God's deacons still at work today. God's government ministers to establish justice on the earth today. Romans 13 talks about this. Let's look at it together, the first seven verses. Romans 13, starting in verse 1. It says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. You should write that down and memorize it. There is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good. Let me start that over. Verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. That's minister right there. That's the word deacon. For government is a deacon of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, the government, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a deacon, a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. I don't, I don't know if this part was inspired. No, I'm just kidding. Ta- yeah, it's, it's inspired. Okay, taxes, you got to pay them. Uh, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So though we are not Israel, we have leaders in our lives to whom we should submit, don't we? We have those established by God Himself, the one who has all authority. He has given His authority to governmental bodies 
who rule over us. And their role is to suppress sin in the land and to reward good in the land. Now, that's pretty flawed, isn't it? Again, thinking about the human element in all of this, when humans seek to rule by themselves without God ruling through them, it's always going to be flawed. That that nation is always going to end in disaster and in death. It cannot last. But if there are rulers in a nation who define justice and righteousness by God's standards, who uphold God's standards who are devoted to God's righteousness, then good things can happen. Good things truly can happen because God would be the one leading through them and they would not be kicking against God. So where does that put us? We don't have a righteous government that upholds God's righteousness as the standard in the land, do we? Well, only God knows how this will play out in our nation. But what we can say, based on the principles of His justice and righteousness in His law, and based on our role under our government today, we know this. We are awaiting the perfect King, and His government is going to be perfect. Remember those verses in Isaiah? For unto us a child is born. Where's the government going to be? on his shoulder. Where's he going to sit? In a throne. What is he going to do? He's going to execute justice. He will be prompt to execute righteousness in the land. We're waiting for this king, understanding God's perfect justice and seeking to understand his imperatives for us in this life. And in the waiting, we submit to the authorities. That is our role. Even if they are ungodly people, even if they are not basing laws on uh, righteousness, we submit to them to a point. Just like the apostles, if we have an ungodly government that seeks to stop the name of Jesus, we fight against that government. We rebel against that government. If we have a government that encourages the death of the innocent, false Uh, wicked, wrongful executions of children or whoever it may be. We stand up for those. If we have a government that oppresses those who should not be oppressed, it is our duty as Christians to kick against that. Even as they kick against God, we kick against them with the gospel, with righteousness. What does God require of you, O man, but to do justice? And we are also to love and be merciful, not to uh, fight with weapons of warfare and kill those who disagree with us, but we're to pray for them. We're to speak truth to them. We are to do something, to stand up with our voices proclaiming the gospel and the truths of God. We are to be fearless and bold in doing so. So I hope in all of this, I know that was a long study and there's still so much more to say. In all of this, I hope that we see the importance of a loving community. Just think, as God's law was written out, if Israel would have have lived everything perfectly, how beautiful that would be, that community. Well, on this side of heaven, 
Uh, we cannot establish that by our own hands. But what we can do is commit ourselves to loving community in the gospel. We can do that and establish truthful fellowship, loving fellowship. And we can recognize also the importance of godly leadership in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, in our federal government, as we wait for Jesus, who is going to come and set all things right, who is going to establish His perfect law, and there will be no end to His rule. Won't that be a great day? I'm sure that a lot of questions came up in your head today if you were able to hang in there. If you hung in there, way to go. I didn't start off by telling you this was a long sermon, though I did uh, tell you to find something uncomfortable to sit on. I don't know if that worked or not. Uh, I'll find out. But all those questions that maybe came up uh, in your head, be sure to save those for Thursday night. This coming Thursday, we are going to have a live stream from the church to answer your questions from Deuteronomy, from Acts, and from our study on local church giving. So I hope that you're able to participate in that. Thanks for watching. Let's go ahead and pray together and ask God to uh, lead us as we seek to apply these principles in our lives. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for the mighty work You've already done in our hearts and the works that You are going to do as You conform us to the image of Your Son. Give us wisdom as we live this life, seeking to establish Your justice, seeking to pursue righteousness, as we look into Your law and see the beauty of Your commands. Give us wisdom and unity and joy as we carry out this gospel duty to be a, a righteous people who seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.